Hey friends, this is Eddie, host of The New Activist. Two quick things. First, if you wouldn't mind sharing the show on social media, we are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. It really helps people find the show and it really gets the word out. And I think these conversations are worth people listening to. So thank you for those that have shared and thank you for continuing to share about The New Activist. And also thanks for going to iTunes and rating and reviewing the show. That is an extremely helpful way to get the word out about The New Activist. The second thing is the content of today's show is a little bit sensitive. And so if you happen to have kids that are in the car with you, this may not be the best show for them to listen along to. So just giving you that as a little bit of a warning. I hope you do enjoy this episode. Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today. Today, we get to hear from my friend and just an incredible person who I admire deeply, Holly Burkhalter. Are you ready for an impressive resume? This is Holly's resume, and I know she doesn't like this, but this is what we do for all our guests, so here's Holly's resume. Holly serves as a senior advisor for justice system transformation at International Justice Mission. She stewards IJM's relationships in the policy, human rights, and development communities, and speaks and publishes regularly on IJM's behalf. She is one of my favorite writers in the world. Um, Don't tell Gary that, but she is one of my favorite writers. Uh, Before joining IJM, Holly spent nine years serving as the U.S. Policy Director for the Philippines, I'm sorry, for Physicians for Human Rights, and 14 years as the Advocacy Director and Director of the Washington Office of the Human Rights Watch. Holly also staffed the White the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Human Rights and International Organizations and worked for then-Representative and then-Senator Tom Harkin, Democrat from Iowa. She is the author of a book that I love. I love this book, Good God, Lousy World, and Me, and links to that book and all of that will be in the show notes. And we are with Holly today at Liberate IJM's 20-year celebration of the work of International Justice Mission, and we are here in front of a live audience. This is so exciting. Hello, friends. Thank you. It is so good to be here with you. Friends, would you join me in warmly welcoming Holly Burkhalter? Holly Burkhalter, how are you? How, um, how bad did I flub your introduction just then? But it was okay. You hate that stuff. You forgot to say I was um, beautiful and intelligent. I missed, I missed that I part. am so sorry All that right. I missed the most important details. <laughs> um, how are you today? What has this been like for you, someone who has been a part of IJM for such a long time and so instrumental in its growth? What's it been like specifically for you being at a 20-year celebration of this work? Well, it's uh, there's a million things I love about it. Uh, one of them, one of the things I love the most is seeing the people that uh, helped get IJM off the ground when it was teeny, and a lot of them came back for this mother of all family reunions. Uh, so yeah. that's been that's been wonderful, and of course. Uh, the extraordinary experience of having all of IJM's field staff from, I mean, a thousand people from yeah. around the world. And, you know, for us that work in the, in the U.S. office uh, of IJM, we know these names and we know this work. We pray for them every day. And they are, they are our colleagues, but to see their faces and to see them by the hundreds. You know, I've been uh, walking around Frisco today and because uh, that's where we are for our IJM gathering in Frisco, Texas. And 
uh, you know, walking, walking around, uh, you know, getting, getting lunch, and I see like large crowds of Ugandans yeah. and large, you know, groups of Indians, and I, I'm saying to myself, I bet they're ours. I, I have a suspicion <laughs> right. that right. they're ours, right. and it's right. just wonderful. We got all the big name tags, and uh, it is, it's just. Joyful. It's just ridiculously joyful. They opened, uh, you, you know this, but telling the listeners, they opened Target a couple days ago. They co- opened it an hour early so that a bunch of the folks on our field staff uh, could go shopping uninterrupted. And so this Target was just filled with uh, all the IJM field staff. And then it was the best because in the lobby, it was just filled and everybody had a Target bag. So it was the world's best Target advertisement. And it was just the, it was just, it's, it's been beautiful to see Gorgeous. IJM descending on Frisco, Texas. Um, you are currently, your, your title currently is the Senior Advisor for Justice System Transformation. Is that right? Well, we could just stick with Senior Advisor, which really is a nice way of saying smart old person. <laughs> That is not true. I mean, you're very smart, yes. Um, But so can you, for those that are not familiar with the IJM world and lingo, like, could you give people a little overview of what IJM is? And could you tell them kind of what what your role is in serving? Well, IJM uh, is a uh, international human rights NGO. And we're this interesting combination of a service provider. We provide actual services to victims of violent abuse. Uh, women and children and men who uh, have been enslaved or trafficked or or raped or abused or exploited, and we are their advocates. Uh, we, we obtain services for them. We represent them in, course, in court in, in about 11 countries around the world, in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And we are simultaneously a partner with governments of, of countries with, with weak justice systems that don't protect people from violent assault, just common, common everyday garden variety crime. The police force doesn't answer that 911 call in part because they don't have phones. And there, there's just not, there, there's missing the capacity to protect those most vulnerable to, to crime and exploitation. So we partner with those authorities in these countries and we sort of walk alongside the, the victims and we simultaneously walk alongside the prosecutors, the policemen, and the court the court personnel um, to help them do their jobs better because really in uh, unlike any other area of, of, of development, there really isn't a substitute for the police. I mean, in the United States, if somebody is, is hurt, if somebody is abused, you expect somebody to come in with protection and, 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 and safety. But in much of the developing world, that service is just simply absent for, for poor people, for women and girls, for people from low caste, minorities, uh, uh, disfavored groups. and. W- an NGO like ours cannot substitute for that because only the police have the authority, only the sovereign government has the authority to restrain the predators. Um, you know, otherwise we could be we could be talking about a lynch bomb. I mean, there right. is rule of law, and the police have the sole authority to restrain the violent and the abusive. But what if they can't and don't know how? And we accompany them and mentor them. Our people on the field, I don't. Our people on the field accompany and mentor them to help them do their jobs. And it, it's quite an exciting and wonderful model. We see transformation in these. Uh, in these fragile and vulnerable and underfunded systems. Um, and that's what we hope to really uh, take to a, a new level over the next 10, 15 years. It, it strikes me, and I don't want this to be like an IJM piece, but like it, it strikes me that you have this like long, interesting resume and just all of these different titles, and you could have landed a lot of different places, and you could have taken a lot of different career paths, yet you landed at IJM. Why? What, what brought you to IJM and, and what, what keeps someone of your ability and intellect here? 
Well, you know, I, I was involved in the human rights movement for many, many, yeah. many years, many decades before coming to IJM, and I had a chance to do wonderful work with wonderful organizations, and much of that work was really about bringing um, international pressure to bear on abusive governments. Uh, I'm proud of that work. I'm glad people are still doing it. But as I came to know IJM, and I knew IJM for many years before I came on staff, I was so excited about uh, about the one, about IJM uh, investigators and, and social workers and lawyers literally going out to make life better for one person. And in my early days here, it was about one person. Um, now it's tens of thousands of people, right? But the idea that that human rights could become real for actually real, for someone who was actually protected, the kid that came out of the brothel, or the, you know, the, 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 the little girl that was raped by her next door neighbor, that, you know, you can read about that and you can write all the op-eds in the world, and I wrote a lot of them, but to actually have people on the field, people from that country who are going to literally go visit that house and talk to witnesses and, and, and bring services to that child and get the authorities interested in, uh, to investigate that case and take it, go apprehend that asshole who raped that child and take them to court. That was actually happening. And I just felt more and more hungry to do what, what, what I could do with whatever skills God gave me to be part of that. It, as I look through all the, the stuff that, that you've done, uh, it, it struck me that you are a part of Disability Rights International, and you were, uh, you, you've just been a longtime supporter of them. Can you tell me what, what brought you to that and how that kind of weaves into the thread of Holly? Uh, I'm a board member of Disability Rights International and have been uh, for a very long time. It's a small organization based in Washington, but they work on protecting the rights of adults and children with, with mental and physical disabilities, particularly mental disabilities, children that are uh, overseas who are just thrown away, uh, tossed into orphanages if they have Down syndrome, adults with mental illness just thrown on the trash heap in a psychiatric institution that offers no services whatsoever. And for a long time in my life, uh, I always felt like if there was one community of vulnerable people that God and the world had truly abandoned, it was the mentally ill and the mentally disabled. And I was pretty bitter about it too, I might say. And really, mental illness is a big part of my own faith journey. I was not a believer, and a pretty angry non-believer, until uh, I was about 50 years old. And, uh, and, a, and a part of that uh, thread line was precisely because of the kind of mystery and and tragedy of mental illness, uh, both at, uh, in, in my own family. Uh, my grandmother uh, had very severe mental illness. I loved her very much, and she was a huge influence in my life, but she had episodic, crippling mental illness. And, was uh, treated? Yeah, eventually. Well, though, she was very aged, and um, we didn't have the new generation of antipsychotic uh, drugs that could have really helped her. She had electroconvulsive therapy a couple of times, done properly, wow. uh, not abusively, right. but, um, but she would have episodic breakdowns. And um, I saw it first when I was about 16 years old, and my grandfather died, and she just, she just went into a sort of catatonic depression. But in Importantly for my own faith journey, she lost her faith. She was a, a missionary. She was a retired missionary. She was the most faithful person I ever knew. And to watch her in truly in pieces and grieving for the loss of her husband, an old man who died a righteous death, um, 
but also grieving for the loss of her faith. I mean, I took a good hard stare at that situation and I thought, well, it really is all in our head. You know, it really is about just love on this earth and when your love dies, God went too, and it was, and, and if there was a real God, this angel, my grandmother, who truly was, um, should surely have access to his kind companionship and did not. And that did it, it's like, we're done. And she uh, regained her health. She did suffer uh, breakdowns about once a year. She lived a long, long life, but she always came back and her faith came back as vibrant, and as radiant and as, as true and as intellectual and as, as it ever had been, but mine certainly did not. And I, I do think that as people of faith uh, and a people of goodwill that the issues of how, how do we reconcile a, a living, true companionship of God with vast suffering, and, and, and how do we reconcile it for people whose own minds have turned against them? How can they understand the good news of the gospel? And just a, a corollary now that I am a believer, what are we as a community of people who love Jesus, how well are we loving the uh, people who can be actually quite unlovable? You know, I love mental, uh, the mentally ill in the abstract and up close, um, it's, it's uh, pretty hard. And I, I know a thing or two about it. I have, uh, I have uh, pretty severe anxiety disorder myself, very well treated, but it was a, a sort of recurring uh, the anxiety that I had for most of my whole life was just sort of a part of my story. Um, well, that's a very long answer to it. No, Where did we go? But I, I wonder, like, with your anxiety and, and, the, and, and your just um, your empathy and special just compassion for individuals with mental illness, I'm curious, in your life and career, have you always been able to be so open, or has this been something that you've had to, like, generally hide because it's not accepted and you've just had to, like, suffer through it? No one could know. Or is this, yeah, tell me how, how the attitudes progressed or regressed. It's a, it's a good question. I uh, got treatment for anxiety disorder and uh, mild OCD. You know, a few people were actually surprised when I got the OCD diagnosis. I'm known to be a bit of a, a live wire and big talker, uh, loud, fast, you know. And when I told my husband that I had uh, mild OCD, he just didn't even look surprised, which was just a little bitter, a little bitter about that. <laughs> it was like, okay, it was so. Like, oh, that can hurt my feelings. Yeah, and? <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I had the great good fortune to have access to really good, uh, you know, not only counseling services to work the stuff, and everybody who has an opportunity to should should grab it. But I also, uh, you know, had good health insurance and a great psychiatrist, and God be praised, uh, good meds, which really, really got the anxiety under control. I mean, there were there were years where I could barely hold a, a coffee cup. My hand was shaking so bad. I had horrible panic attacks and. Uh, insomnia and, and yeah, boring, you know, sort of stuff. But I do think that that mental illness is a, it, it, it's so much a part of our world and our families, and it was so much a part of Jesus's world. I'll tell you, as a as a person who wanted to be a believer for a lot longer than uh, longer than before, for a long time before I became a believer, when I started to actually read the gospel, my favorite favorite story was Jesus and the crazy people. You know, it's just so brilliant. How could I have not known that Jesus just loved nuts and, and went and found them and asked them their name? And, you know, and my, my all-time favorite Bible story, which just gives me the most immense joy, is uh, Legion. 
you know, the, the guy who is so, so uh, broken and so uh, mentally ill that he lives up in the tombstones, chained up there, despised and frightened, his community won't even have him on there, you know, won't even have him in the village, and who, and, uh, Jesus goes out to find him, and quite beautifully, you know, this is a guy who's hurting himself, tearing at his chains, raving, and Jesus says, what is your name? Can you imagine? Might have been the first person on planet Earth to have ever asked Legion his name, uh, and, and just moves right in and lays on hands and loves. And um, that whole kind of Jesus creating a completely different paradigm about the relationship between illness and sin is one of the things I truly, truly love most about the Lord and which I didn't know when I was not a believer and uh, I was not a quick study. It took me a long time to get it sort of figured out, yeah. but I'm still sort of constantly interested in that question. Where is, where is God in the, in the life of the suffering and those who suffer mentally and physically? And um, we got to keep working at that, you know, all of us, yeah. because the world is so broken. It's a... Uh, it's a crappy place for many, many people. Maybe not for us, uh, but we, we as believers, uh, it has to feel crappy to us too if it is crappy for our brothers and sisters. And, and so how do, we, how do we square that with our faith? It strikes me when I see the breadth of basically your vocational and personal pursuits between, uh, you know, Disability Rights International to IJM, that like so much of it has to do with you helping give voice to those who are voiceless. Do, do you know where that comes from? Do you know why that that, that is? Is that even a fair thread to put, to put through it? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about... Uh, I don't know about that, Let me that, ask you Eddie. a different way. Not everybody spends a lot of their life caring about other people, and they do other fine jobs and professions. It's great, but so much of your work has been about serving other people, even before you were a believer. Do you know where that instinct comes from? Have you always been like, were you the kid that like stood up for the other kid in the playground, or was there like, was there an instigating moment in your life that that you just knew like, I, I, like I'm going to no, help change I'm, the world. I'm not yeah. much of a, you know, I'm as obnoxious as the next person. I'm not that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not calling you like uh, a you know, hero or I'm anything. I'm just saying. Really like, that much of a goody two shoes. I, I do have a very soft heart, and uh, even as a very young child, just I. Um, uh, I couldn't watch TV because um, back in the 50s, we, we actually didn't have a TV, but we would visit friends and that sure is, uh, is you know, big as life, some TV show would come on, we'd all be glued to it because it was like, oh my gosh, like crack cocaine when you don't have a TV of your own and then you are looking at somebody else's black and white TV and sure as shootings, there's going to be some cowboy show and some horse is going to fall down and then I'm going to be completely undone because this horse is lying on the ground. I just had, and I would just weep. I was so irritating that way. But I, I did have, I think, an un unusual Irritating. porosity to pain. And probably that's because I had pain. We all have pain. Um, and maybe, uh, I don't know, my grandmother and grandfather being missionaries who uh, lived with the poor um, was very inspiring to me. Um, but I don't know. I don't know any more than that. I, I, mostly I just think I got tremendously lucky to get to work on. Who wouldn't want to work on the most important things in the world? 
who wouldn't, you know? I've just been tremendously blessed. So what was the trajectory for that when you're in college? I mean, are you, because I'm aware that people are listening to this right now, they're like deciding on majors, they're deciding how they're gonna live their life, and they wanna be able to like help people, help to do things like this that you are fortunate to get to do. Like, what was your trajectory um, from, as, as a young adult figuring out Okay, I, I I wanna I wanna lean in to helping. Like what what? You... Mm. Oh, it's just it was total randomness. I was a piano major in college and not a terribly you good were. one. Yeah, I was. Um, you were. My dad was a classical musician, and I his whole huh. his whole life long, and and I desperately wanted to please him and do the thing that he valued the most, uh, which is play classical music. And I just wasn't very, I wasn't good enough and I didn't have the fire. I didn't have the, the energy, but I fell, just literally stumbled into human rights work through the uh, almost random opportunity to work in a congressman's office. Uh, I uh, was looking for a part-time job when I was senior in college, just just needing to get get a little money under my belt, and uh, got to know this local office in Iowa. I'm from Ames, Iowa, and the congressman had a district office, and I just went and met them. It seemed they needed a typist, which I boy, if there is one gift God has given me in. Uh, triplicate. It is. I'm really fast on a typewriter. You are so interesting. You are. This is I the am. most interesting answer to this question. Uh, <laughs> Keep going. I just uh, say whatever is on your mind. You are really good on a typewriter. I had no idea. Yeah, and I you type, play piano. Type fast. That's awesome. Um, but. I typed a lot, you know, this is all pre, pre-computers, et cetera, and there was a heck of a lot of typing to do. I answered all the mail in the congressman's office for a while. But he was a human rights activist. Um, his name's Tom Harkin. He's retired from the Senate now, but he was a great activist. And, the, and in the 70s and 80s, when I worked in Congress, this was just a time where there was just tidal waves of atrocities going on. And, and we were in the Cold War, right? So we have, we have the countries that the United States is associated with, and they're our buddies, and they commit atrocities. And then there's the the terrible, you know, the East Bloc and their atrocities. And uh, I got to work on all of it. I got to, in my my particular, the thing I care about the most and still care about enormously was that the United States should use its good offices, no matter who's the president. Um, to try to make something better. You know, I, I worked very hard throughout my career to try to find ways the U.S. could kind of use its foreign aid as a lever or a, a nudge or a carrot or a stick to try to get governments to stop torturing and bring rapists in the police force uh, to justice or stop the ethnic cleansing. I worked on all those issues. And I always believed, I was never cynical, that the United States could do good in the world. And we did not need to have completely clean hands, which we do not have to do good in the world. And I started doing that work with the getting the U.S. government, you know, pushing the U.S. government and working through Congress to get Congress to push the executive branch as far back as Jimmy Carter. So, and I got to do that in the Reagan years and in uh, both president. But, and it, it was the same job, get Congress to be kind of a counterweight, push the executive branch and the State Department and the diplomats to use their power uh, on, on the behalf of the, the hurting and the powerless. And... Um, I really got there. I came to human rights through that, on that road, because I worked for this activist congressman who just said, use our office. Do, you know, take up every political prisoner you can find. Just use it. Use all the power. And we did. I am curious in this age where we are politically disillusioned at best and at worst just angry and frustrated and quitting, 
It strikes me that you have spent so much time within the political machine using it for good and, 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 and for you know, the sake of IJM and for all kinds of different people and organizations. I'm curious, like, not how you reconcile like, today's government, but like, what is your hope for what politics can be as a force for good? Mm. Or the political it's system, a really good. It's a really good question. I, I still think uh, and I, that living in a democracy is an extraordinary privilege. And, uh, and we do live in a democracy. And it means that when our voices uh, become loud enough, we get paid attention to. And I've seen that in my work for IJM, where activists, you know, many of whom have come to uh, this wonderful Liberate uh, Party, uh, have used their voices, and we were able to get millions and millions and millions of dollars from the UN, you know, from the United States to combat slavery overseas. I've seen it work, and I know it can. And I, I think my my prayer for our country is that good that people won't give up on our democratic government, and that good people will run for office, and good people will serve, no matter who's the president. They'll serve in the State Department. They'll serve in the various and and put their shoulder to the wheel and and do what government should be doing, which is keep, keep the, you know, the, the people safe and, and look out for the least of these. And I, you know, I'm not too interested in, in political divisions. I'm interested in stewarding power and um, the sort of ridiculous sort of fortune of wealth that this country has. Not everyone in, in our country, but we have immense wealth. And our job as citizens in a democracy is to say, let's use it for good. And, I, and I've seen it being used for good, and I know it can happen again. It is happening. It's happening now. If I may ask a few personal questions as we kind of round third in our time, I'm wondering what, what change in your perspective, if at all, uh, being a parent had on, on your <laughs> life and, and your work? Oh gosh. Well, I uh, we adopted our daughters, um, Grace and Josie, um, from China and from Vietnam. And I was not a believer at the time, but I'll tell you, I do think the holding our our, our daughter Grace, uh, who was four months old, in China, in in my arms for the first time, I was struck in a way I had never been struck before. That this is the most wondrous thing. There's nothing I ever did in life to deserve this. This is not from me. It literally wasn't from me. This is not from me, and this is the whole deal right here. And I do think that was, again, I've been sort of slow on the uptake to attribute that kind of glory to the creator of the universe, but I do now. Mm. And, I, and I also think that um, if, I was already involved in human rights, but having your, your own children who are more dear to you than anything else on earth m did make me even more vulnerable to the moms uh, whose kids died at two years of age. My kids are running around, they're fine. And that it, it heightened that sense of anger and frustration with the terrible disparity of suffering. Like, why do my kids get to live? Yours, don't, yours didn't. Right. And it was particularly acute for me, I think, because my kids might have died. You know, Grace as a Chinese uh, baby, given up because she was a girl. You know, uh, the, either of them in, lived in poor countries. They could right. have died. They didn't. I got them. You know, why me? Because God blessed me, but not you. And I, it, it sort of heightened that sense of anxiety and tension over good God, lousy world, like great life, but 
I, it was hard to take joy and, and praise the Lord for my blessings, knowing that it was random that I had them, and, and I knew that others did not. So, you know, and it, it's still, you choke, we have to choke on that, like, still. Um, you and I have spoken a bunch this year about, uh, we have talked about grief together uh, because you have experienced uh, deep grief this year with the loss of your husband, John Fitzpatrick, earlier in the year. Um, and, uh, and I know that you spent a lot of his final years caring for him, like physically, like caring for like his, his all of his physical needs. And I I'm curious, what does it do to a person to care for another person like that? I, ha I have never experienced anything like that, but I feel like you have a different view of humanity, maybe. I, 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 I don't know, but I'm curious. No, I'm just ordinary, but I have, I, I do, uh, I have a great companion, and the Holy Spirit was an extraordinary companion uh, throughout uh, John's illness and death and, and thereafter, and I will say that and I'm glad to be able to say it here to this, to this, uh, with this community of uh, of people who have faith, that it's so interesting that for almost all my adult life, till about the age of 50, I did not believe in God. I couldn't, and I resolutely did not, because of suffering, because of tragedy and suffering, and then. I changed my mind, or God found me, or I found God, or however that mystery works, largely because of the work of IJM, because I saw these believers, you know, these Christians, you know, they were, they were, they literally believed, you know, the words, the black words on white paper, that were actually God has a plan, and we're supposed to do something about it. Like, that's the deal. It's part of the thing. And it was such a revelation. Like, what? They care more, they care as much as I do and their God cares more. And I had, I had to completely redo my thoughts about God, Bible, Christianity, etc. And I met some awesome Christians. So that's, that's the part of that story. But, but I still had this sense of how can suffering coexist with this loving and involved and faithful God. And then I really did. My kids and I and my husband suffered terribly. And I prayed uh, pretty inarticulately. I prayed that I would not be afraid and that I would not, when John was diagnosed with lung cancer, and that I would not be mad at him and that I would not be mad at God. And then I just, you know, basically would every once in a while sort of say, you still here with me? Are we in the mess together? And I always felt like, yeah, we're in the mess together. And in fact, I never had a... Um, a clearer sense of the companionship and the love and the support and the, like literally the arm holding me up. Uh, never had in my life a stronger sense of a good God than when my husband was dying. And so that just blows to shit my notions about, you know, well, wait a second. The very thing that kept me from being a believer turned out to just be untrue actually. You know, and that God didn't disappear when my husband died, as it, as it seemed to do for my grandmother, you know, right. going back to that story. And, and I do believe the Lord never did disappear from her life either. She just grieved real hard, you know, and she had a mental disability. But, and so I'm, I don't have any wisdom about this. It's just that I think that Jesus meant it 
He meant it when he said, I'll be with you. In fact, I'm leaving, and his friends were going, oh, please don't go, please don't. What could be better than having you? Oh, no, I've got something even better. How could that even be? Can you contemplate that, Eddie? You're a pastor. Now, no. <laughs> How could that even be something better than being buddies with Jesus? The Holy Spirit is like your constant friend. And we read those words. But to live that, to actually know that, because it was true. I mean, no, I, you can't sell that to, to anybody. Uh, I won't stand on a street corner with it, but it is my story and it is my experience in life. And it's very precious. And now in these, oh, I have to figure out now, how do I live? My youngest daughter has moved out into a new apartment and I'm all alone in that house. And I'm really sad. And I, but I remember, oh, God was entirely with me and with us when John was sick and all the way. So he's still there. He's still there, you know, and I, it's not a happy time. You know, it is kind of a valley, but, uh, and I don't have any cheerful words to wrap it up, except that Jesus is the real deal and um, is, no, is never more real than in, than in suffering and loss. Wow, there you go. Thanks for sharing that, Holly. Uh, last few things. Um, there are people, and I, I, I know you're going you're gonna to push back at this question, but I'm going to ask it. Um, there are young women and men in college who are listening to this, right? They're on their walk to school, they're in the subway, and they are essentially figuring out, like, how do I how do I have this kind of career? How do I have this kind of life and perspective? And I know, I know you're like, oh no, I'm just, it was all by accident. I know you're very humble about it and I appreciate the humility, but as a, as a freedom fighter who has influenced governments and has really worked very hard to serve the world, what would you say to her? What would you say to her like to, to, to either advice or even just a next step to leverage her life for the sake of other people in, in a way like you have? Hmm. Well, I guess I, because I know that the human rights field is pretty small and that I've just happened to be extremely lucky to have had a job in international human rights and got paid to do something that uh, brought me a great deal of joy um, for about 40 years. But I, I actually think the real, the real answer is that we are to love what comes across our path. That, that, and that can be on the line at IBM, and that can be, you know, with your child at home, and, and it can be, you know, as a barista making coffee, you just love what comes across your path. And you don't have to look very, you don't have to look to, you know, Guatemala or China uh, to find someone to love that desperately needs love and help. It's like right down the street. It's right down the street, right? It's across the street. It's, you know, it's lying on the grate in the subway, or it's that, you know, unlikable person that, you know, nobody seems to want to be around. And I, I do think that it is not easy, and we're supposed to love what comes across our path in community. Because I honestly, even though I'm not much of a churchgoer, and I have a little bit of a struggle with the church, a lot, That's but right. Jesus loved the church and said, this is how it's, this is how we're going to get the work done. This is how we're going to get the love done, right? In community. And so at its most brilliant and in its most faithful, 
that's what our churches do. And, and that's what they strive to do in all our brokenness and humanness and uh, obnoxiousness and off-keyness. That is what we do in community. And either it can just take all kinds of glorious forms. Uh, and sometimes that form is organizing against slavery in your own community or poverty or suffering or trafficking. Or, and sometimes it's asking your policymakers to care about the globe because we have this rich opportunity to do so in this unique country of ours. But whatever it is, um, that's what the Lord asked us to do. And so I, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to say, how can you be as lucky as me? I, I mean, in part, I sort of grew up in the modern human rights movement and was part of inventing it. I've been, I've been extra, and so you, you actually got to have a job when you didn't have any particular skills, except typing, <laughs> except typing. Right, right, right. Um, you're so good at that. But, um, but I, I do think that the real question is how do we, how do we love well, uh, and not just the people that are lovable, and how do we steward our power, whatever that power is, whatever that, whether it's some money or whether it's, you know, whether it's access or whether it's just loving well or whether it's showing up and being a friend. But how are we stewarding? It's like that. Uh, earlier this weekend, we were we were looking at a, the parable of the talents. And I decided for myself that the, you know, this parable where, where you know, it's quite, it, it's, it's quite an irritating story where, you know, the person who doesn't, who has the least gets punished for not doing anything with That's it. Like, right. what? This is unjust. What? No. But if you think of what the master, uh, and I like to think that is the Lord, since I don't believe that human beings should ever be masters, that the that the authority get what that what the thing is that we have is isn't opportunity it isn't money what it, it must be must be love what it must be is love right and if you go out with that love that you'd been given and then spread it around and double it that really makes the lord happy but if you take that that love whatever with that however small bit that you had and bury it and then nothing comes of it and that makes the lord sad I don't know how I came to answer that question that way. It was so interesting, though. Friends, Holly Burkhalter, please. Well, I am extremely grateful with all of my friends here for you, Holly, and for your transparency and for your life and for your humility and for your wisdom today. To keep up with all things Holly Burkhalter, stay tuned to IJM and IJM social media. Also, her book, the link to her book will be in the show notes of this episode. This is a book you should definitely read. And also the brand new uh, If Gathering study, Arise, uh, Holly wrote in it uh, very just beautifully and movingly uh, just about her life as well. So make sure to get that. Of course, the conversation that began here today will continue on social media. New Activist is both on Facebook and Twitter as well as our website, newactivist.is. A huge thanks to the brilliance who scored today's show to find out where they are touring and all about their new music. Some exciting stuff coming from them, by the way. Go to thebrilliancemusic.com. And finally, a massive thanks to the volunteers that made today's show happen, as well as the live audience that is here today. Thank you all so. This is cool. This is cool. I felt very lucky to be in this room with all of you today. And with that, we go back into the world. 
on behalf of Holly Burkhalter as well as our colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.